If you have your Bible, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking today at verse 18, principally one word from verse 18, the very first word. We'll get there in just a minute. To give a little bit of context, since we've been out of 1 Peter for a couple of weeks, I'm going to start back at verse 11. Verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And today, servants or slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Let's ask God's blessing on this time. Father, as we think about the glories of Christ, as we think about his exaltation in heaven and his incomprehensible humiliation to come to earth and to take the place of his people, of his bride. Lord, our brains cannot even comprehend the 10th part of this reality. And yet we are asking for that which is your will, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of God, to be filled with this knowledge so that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. I ask now, during this time, that you would send your spirit into our midst, that you would help me to speak what is pleasing in your ears, the truth of your word, that these people might be able to hear, understand, their souls might be well fed, so your kingdom might expand, and word of your goodness might go throughout all the world. In the name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen. Well, as we are returning to 1 Peter, to catch everyone up, we are in a series of imperatives. I began with verse 11 in the reading this morning because Peter says, Beloved, I urge you. And you remember that's a phrase that the apostles, the writers of the epistles, usually use to indicate when they're transitioning from a period of truth and understanding about the position of the Christian to what the Christian must do, who he or she must be in Christ. We've looked at in verses 11 and 12 that we are to watch our soul and our conduct. We are to take care of ourselves as well as ourselves in relationship to others around us. In verses 13 and 14, we are to submit to the human institutions that God has ordained. And in verses 15 and 16, as free people, 
to submit for the Lord's sake and for our witness. In verse 17, we are to respond to God, the church, and the government appropriately. These are all imperatives, things that we are commanded to do by Christ. And today, we begin a new section as we've looked more broadly at the relationship of Christians to the world and then focusing more and more narrowly on the relationship of Christians to government. Now we're going to go a step further, even more narrow, and look at the relationship from a Christian who happens to be an indentured servant or a slave to their master. Peter is continuing to ratchet down this scope and zoom in so we can see more and more precisely what people in the kingdom of Jesus are to behave or act like in the various situations in which they find themselves. Well, today I think it's important that we look at just one word from this verse. I know we've moved slowly at this point, but it is important, I think, for us to take a look and examine at this word, servants. And I'll give you an illustration of why I think this is important. Um, when I was in middle school, um, I was standing in the lunch line and I got punched, okay? Now, I know that sounds a little strange. Why would that have anything to do with slaves or servants? Well, I think I deserved to get punched. And um, the reason was I, was I was a pretty unknowing kid. I was standing next to a young man. Uh, and uh, at our middle school, it was a little bit more of an inner city, a mixed school. And this young man was speaking in a way that I was unfamiliar with from more of a rural context. He was using some slang language, some jargon, lingo, some vocab I wasn't familiar with. And, um, and I just looked at him and I said, why are you talking like that? And uh, he looked back at me and he said, well, because I'm black. And uh, this startled me because I didn't have a category for a human being who might have been born a certain ethnicity, but came out with a genetic change that caused their skin to be completely white. He's what we would call an albino. And I looked at him and I said, no, you're not. And he looked back at me and he said, yes, I am. And me being the little innocent child that I was, sixth grade kid, I said, no, you're really not. And that's when he proceeded to punch me in the arm. And I went to my lunch table and shed a few tears and learned a thing. And um, I, I think this reveals to us why it's important to slow down when it comes to topics like slavery, like indentured servanthood. The world today is telling us, I know you think that that means this, but it actually means this. I know you think that I look like this, but I'm actually this. I know you think I look like a boy, but I'm actually a girl. I know you think you know what slavery means, but it actually means this. Now, for me to slow down and stop and talk about the issue of slavery from a biblical perspective is to take a risk. And I'm going to assume that risk with you all this morning. I know that the words that I use today and how I describe what the Bible reveals to us about slavery could be misunderstood as Chris is trying to be an apologist for the institution of slavery. I will make no attempt at that this morning. I will not. I give you my word. I am not going to make an attempt at being an apologist for the institution of slavery, particularly what we are all so familiar with, which is the antebellum South 
what is called chattel or ownership slavery, human beings being owned as property. I will not make any apologies for that to you this morning, but our understanding of slavery in America largely colors, if you'll allow me to say that, our understanding of what we read in the Scripture. We are reading oftentimes the Scripture in reverse. We are using our current context and what we have understood or been taught in maybe a public school setting about the institution of slavery and we read that into the Bible and we might come away thinking things like, well, how could God be so unjust to allow an institution like slavery to exist? How could God be so unjust that in the New Testament days He would not completely abolish slavery? Why were the apostles not adamant that the institution of slavery be completely abolished? You see here Peter saying the servants as your ESV, depending on what translation you have, if you have a Christian standard Bible, it might use the term slaves. They're not only to be respectful to their masters, but not just to the good and gentle masters, but also to those who are unjust. Why would Peter say such a thing? Now, I think it's important for us to slow down and think about what the Bible has to say from cover to cover about indentured servanthood, bond servantship, or the institution of slavery. In your ESV, you see in verse 18 the word servant. This is the Greek word oiketes. It is not the familiar term that might be used in the context of slavery. That is the Greek word doulos. However, oiketes is a very similar word. Oikos is the Greek word for house or home. Oikeo means to dwell. It's the verb form. These individuals were those who lived in the same home as a ruling master and... This is important for our understanding, beloved. They were under the complete control and jurisdiction of those whom they served. Now, when you think of a servant, you might think of somebody in Victorian England, okay? Some of you may watch uh, some of those old Victorian movies like Sense and Sensibility or Pride and Prejudice. Now, uh, men, if you are able to watch those movies with your wife and you happen not to fall asleep during the middle of them, um, you, you might see a, a man or a woman who is a servant in the household of a master, but it's also their occupation. It's their job. If they choose to, they can talk to their master about it and say, you know, there's another opportunity for me over here. I'd like to take this opportunity. In the context of what we see in the New Testament, the oikates didn't have that privilege. They did not have that freedom. They were under the complete control of their master. Now, I want you to take that understanding of this Greek word and apply it to some texts that you may be more familiar with. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 24, verse 45. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise oikates, household servant or slave, whom his master has set over his household? to give them their food in the proper time. Jesus says again in Luke chapter 16, this one's very interesting. No servant, no oikates, can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve 
both God and money. Now that's an interesting verse when you think about it in the context of a, a servant or a household slave who would have been completely under the authority of their master. We think in our context, well, I'm employed, I work at this company, and my boss, I'm, I'm to serve them, but I'm also here because I make money. That's, that's what I'm here for. So, I, I mean, Jesus, I understand what you're saying, but I mean, I kind of can do both. Like, I, I serve my boss, and I do well, but I, I'm here to make money. But the oikates was there completely for the master. The money was not the issue. And that's why it should have been so foreign to the people who heard Jesus speaking in Luke 16 to say, well, yeah, you can't serve two masters. I mean, you have one master. He is the master of the house. You must serve him. These people, beloved, these oikates were not independent contractors, okay? They didn't get a 1099 form at the end of the year, right? They didn't write this off on their taxes. They were completely under the authority of the master of the house. Now, our modern translations try as best they can to communicate the Word of God to us in ways that will not cause us to stumble or misunderstand. The problem is words are loaded with meaning. And so to say, as the Christian Standard Bible does, Peter is talking to household slaves is a risk. Is it accurate? Yes. Does it identify exactly who Peter's talking about? I think so. But when we in the West hear the word slavery, we think of a certain kind. And we think, well, how could Peter be speaking to people like that? So the ESV chooses the more subtle term, servants. But when we hear the word servant, we might think of somebody whose occupation is to go to the house every day and put in 8 to 10 hours and then go home. That's also not the case. We need something that maybe crosses that divide. I actually do prefer the Christian Standard Bible's rendering household slaves. So what I'd like to do today is take the next few minutes of our time together and walk through slavery according to the Bible. I want to walk through what the Bible says about slavery from cover to cover as best as we can. This will be a little bit more of a topical sermon. But interestingly enough, not only does it fit with our context today, it fits very well with the theme of Advent that we're in this season and this time of the year. An outline for you, for those of you who like outlines. We're going to talk first about slavery in the Old Testament. Then we're going to talk about slavery in the New Testament. And then I want to conclude our time together thinking about slavery and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Slavery and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at slavery in the context of the Old Testament. Beloved, what you need to know the Old Testament teaches us about slavery is that it is unavoidable. Slavery, the reality of slavery is unavoidable in two different ways. Jesus said in John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Now, Flip over to Genesis chapter 3, and what do you see? The very first slave was the very first man that ever existed. The very first slave was the very first man that ever existed. When Adam chose to sin with Eve, sin entered the world, and these two put themselves in shackles of their own making. They chose to become slaves. 
This means that all of us down from Adam have inherited that same slavery to sin. That is in who we are. It is in our souls. It is the very fiber of what we are born into. David says in Psalm 51, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. That's from the Christian Standard Bible as well. You know, one of our favorite Advent albums to listen to, probably our favorite, is um, Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God. And he has a song on that album as he walks through the story of Christ from creation to the cross called Deliver Us. And he speaks of the biblical theology, this idea of people being set free from slavery in Egypt. But he relates that to our slavery and sin, which is exactly how we should read Exodus. That's exactly what we should see. Andrew Peterson writes, Our enemy, our captor, is no Pharaoh on the Nile. Our toil is neither mud nor brick nor sand. Our ankles bear no calluses from chains. Yet, Lord, we are bound. Imprisoned here, we dwell in our own land. Our sins, they are more numerous than all the lambs we slay. Our shackles, they were made with our own hands. Our toil is our atonement. The best we can make at atonement is working. All I can do is work, 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 work. But he says, our freedom, Yahweh is yours to give. So break this silence if you can. Our cultural zeitgeist today, the spirit of the age, wants you to completely put the thought of slavery out of your mind. Don't even think about it. It is abhorrent. It is evil. It is sick. It is disgusting. And by the way, I told you I'm not going to make apologies today for slavery. But... The category of being a slave is something we all need to pay very close attention to because the only people who are saved are those who recognize that they are slaves. The only people that become Christians are those who realize I am in a state of slavery, one in which I cannot control nor can I free myself from. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables. He tells three parables in a row. He tells a parable of a lost coin. He tells a parable of a lost sheep. And he tells a parable of a lost son. In the first two parables, the Greek word for repentance is used. In the prodigal son story, the lost son story, he doesn't use the word for repentance. He speaks even more clearly. The prodigal son, after squandering all of his father's wealth, sells himself into indentured servitude, into slavery. He says, I'll make myself a slave to try and provide for myself. And then the Bible says, after he came to his senses, what did he realize? I'm a slave. I've got nothing. It would be better to be a slave in my father's house. The only people who are saved are those who recognize that they are slaves. I will tell you this, beloved. Slavery is a real thing. Physical bondage is just that. It is bondage. But slavery for every man and every woman who have ever lived is unavoidable. Recognizing that you are a slave is the first step to your freedom. Well, you know that not only is slavery unavoidable for us as human beings, but we live in a world 
where everywhere around us we see examples of slavery. Even in the modern world, we see a kind of servitude around the world. Even here in America, though we might not see it, like death and like funerals that we speed through and we don't take time to mourn and we don't take time to think about the reality of our mortality, we also don't think about the kinds of slavery that we often find ourselves in, even here in our own country. But in the Old Testament, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, God gives various laws about slavery. He actually gives various regulations about the institution of a kind of indentured servant. And I want you to know this about what God says in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. You read some laws that look very stark, very hard to understand. Wait a sec, if they, they put out his eye, but he was his property, he, he was his money. I, I don't understand. L let me read to you what Jesus says about the law code. When asked a question, what was the greatest law in God's law code? Jesus responded, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. He says again, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, when you get to these Old Testament laws about slavery and you're reading them and you're going, oh, how could God say some of these things? If you can't read that law and get to the place where you see, oh, that's what I would want done to me, you are not reading it right. That is what Jesus, if we were to take the code of Moses, all of the 600 plus laws, and we were to hang them on a wall, I need a nail that's strong enough to hold those laws up. The only nail that's going to hold it up is love. Love of God, love of neighbor. Whatever I'd want others to do to me, I do to them. That's the only thing that'll support the law of God. That is what all of the law of God is built on. That's the very foundation of God's legal code. Now, God does in his law code tell us what love is not. He does say, this is not what I'm talking about when I talk about slavery. In Exodus 21, verse 16, He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or that man is found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. I'll read that again. He who kidnaps or steals a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. This is repeated again in Deuteronomy 24, verse 7. Let's get this out of the way right now. Man-stealing is sin in the eyes of God. And I believe that man-stealing ought to be punished with the death penalty. Man-stealing is sin in the eyes of God. I believe that it should be punished with the death penalty. You want to stop some of the man-stealing? Let's give a capital punishment for that. It will curb that sin. It will help rake that back. This means that the man-stealing of the African slave trade was heinous sin in the eyes of God. Also, the slavery of the Aztecs, which is the earliest known slavery in Mexico. Also, the slavery of the Native Americans. The Comanche, you may have heard of, which now modern-day Texas is where they typically resided, also practiced man-stealing. 
The Mongols enslaved the Chinese after the Mongol invasion. That was a sin in the eyes of God. Also, the Chinese enslaved the Mongols during the Yuan Dynasty. There was extensive slavery in the Korean Peninsula during the Middle Ages and also all across the European continent throughout history. The Norse Vikings were regular practitioners of stealing people to use and sell as slaves. The African continent saw more people stealing and selling than perhaps anywhere in the world. It is estimated that between 1300 and 1900 A.D., a third of the population of West Africa was in slavery. It's still a problem today, beloved. You know this. Estimates that are current today tell us that about 40 million people are victims of man-stealing and are in slavery. Most of them are in sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. I actually think that number is probably quite low. I think it's a lot higher than that. And beloved, what I want to tell you is this. Exodus 21.16, God's prohibition to steal a human being is not a white problem. It's not. It's not an antebellum South problem. It's a human problem. We're all enslaved to sin. And what does that sin want to enslave others? Misery loves company, right? I, I'm, I'm enslaved. I want, I want somebody to be below me. I want to be here. I'm going to put them down here. I deserve X, Y, or Z. This is exactly what our, our slavery to sin leads us to. Man-stealing is not love. God hates this. God always has and always will. But the Bible assumes also that there will be a category of a displaced person. What can be done for people who find themselves in poverty with little or no hope of prosperity? How do you deal with those whose homes and livelihood are destroyed by famine, or disaster, or war. We presume on our current understanding of how things are done today, we need to beware of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. We think because we've come this far in history, we're so much better off than those who have come before. But what is love in God's law code? Exodus 21 verse 2, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you for six years, and in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. Notice the word when. It is a case law. It is not requiring you to go buy slaves. Every Hebrew must have ten slaves. You must have this many girls and this many boys. It doesn't say that. It says when. Why? Because God assumes that his people at various times are going to go through hardship. And you might come to your brother as a Hebrew and say, I have no hope of survival. My family is going to starve. I'll give you the next six years of my life. Would you provide for me and my family? When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you for six years. And in the seventh year, he'll go out free. Now, when you look at it that way, do you hear the whatever you would want others do to you, do also to them? That's the way that we're to understand these texts. That's the way that we're to see this. In our minds, we think, wait, whoa, 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 hang on. What do you mean when? God, there is no when. You don't ever own a slave. Well, Maybe in our current understanding and with the context that we have of the way that we think of slavery, that is our response. But definitions matter, beloved. 
the way that we think of slavery today is largely determined by what we learned in a public school about the antebellum South. But we still have to do something with the poor. Jesus said they're always among us. Now, what do we do? Let's say, just a modern day scenario, that you pull up next to someone panhandling on the side of the interstate, and they wave you down and they ask for money. You politely tell them no. But you would be willing to let them work at a store you own on 10-hour shifts, and that they will be compensated for their time through room and board. You also ask for a six-year commitment that is legally binding. At the end of six years, they will have an option to keep working for you or to strike out on their own. Now, Chris, are you actually suggesting that we do that? Well, let's look at the alternative. The alternative would be that the government comes in and takes over. They take money, I would call it stealing, to create a welfare program. That welfare program offers your money that you've worked for to people who are less fortunate or we're told are less fortunate. We're told that these people can't work. Those who are truly in poverty and many who are not are given little incentive to improve their station because if they did, that would remove their benefit. The accountability for this system would likely be poor at best and the cycle perpetual and perhaps unending. Now, you look at the two options before you, okay? Option number two is where we're at today. This is the government stepping in and taking over. By the way, the reason I call stealing for the sake of welfare, stealing and not taxation, is because the welfare of the family is given first to the family. Then it's given to the church. It is not given to the state. It is not given to the state. But the church, when help was needed over the years, has backed off. Well, we don't have as much money. Maybe Uncle Sam can come and help. The family has engaged in all sorts of immorality and breakups and all sorts of destruction, and so they've backed off. Well, what does happen? The state comes in and says, I can be a good mom. I'll take care of you. We see where we're at today. We should be willing to rethink the way that we do care for the poor according to principles in God's Word. What we read in God's Old Testament law has to be based on the idea of love. Remember, one nail holds this up. Exodus 21 helps us to consider what love is, what we would want to be done to us. Now, much more could be said about the laws in Exodus and Deuteronomy, and I don't have time for those today. I do want to transition to slavery as we see it in the New Testament. We're going to look at slavery from a New Testament perspective. And to be honest, beloved, in the New Testament, there's not much that has changed. The institution has, because of the Roman occupations of various countries around the world, and before that the Greeks, and before that the Persians, and the Medes, and the Assyrians, and the Babylonians, all of these peoples all over the world have been displaced and displaced and displaced. So Rome came up with a way to systematize the institution of slavery. I want to read a quote to you from a theologian that I respect and admire quite a bit, Tom Schreiner. This is his thoughts on the state of slavery during the time that Peter would have been writing. He says, People become slaves by being captured in wars, kidnapped, or 
born into a slave household. Those facing economic hardships might choose to sell themselves into slavery in order to survive. We've talked about all of those categories at this point. Many slaves lived miserably, particularly those who served in the mines. Other slaves, however, served as doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, artisans, and could even own other slaves. It would not be unusual for a slave to be better educated than the master. By the way, Tom Schreiner is not an apologist for slavery. He's just telling you the reality. If anybody says anything that might sound positive, we're like, oh, that's so backwards. Why would you? Hang on. Let's just talk about the facts. This is what was going on. A slave could be better educated than their master. They could be far more skilled than the master of the house. That's just a fact. Tom Schreiner goes on to say, those who are familiar with slavery from the history of the United States must beware of imposing our historical experience on New Testament times since slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not based on race and American slave owners discouraged education of slaves. Still, slaves in the Greco-Roman world were under the control of their masters and hence they had no independent existence. The oikotes. Who are we talking about here? Not somebody that gets to make their own choices. They have no independent existence. They could suffer brutal mistreatment. Peter seems to allude to some of that here. At the hands of their owners. And children born into slavery... Yes. Children born into slavery belonged to their masters rather than the parents who gave them birth. Slaves had no legal rights and masters could and at times did beat them, brand them, and abuse them physically and sexually. This is a quote Schreiner makes from another man, J.A. Harrell. He says, Despite claims of some New Testament scholars, ancient slavery was not more humane than modern slavery. You can take it to the bank. I don't like that all of the sin has happened through this institution throughout the world, but this is the reality, beloved. It's not gotten worse or better over time. We've always because of the sin within us that enslaves each of us, hated by our very nature, our fellow man, and sought to do him wrong. Schreiner goes on to conclude, slaves could purchase their freedom in the Greco-Roman world with the help of their masters, a procedure called manumission. Manumission, however, was available mainly for urban slaves, and most slaves had no hope of being manumitted. Now, it was into this context, it was into this moment in history that God, through the Holy Spirit, had Peter and Paul write the things that they wrote directly to slaves. Think about this. Into that context where there was no independent existence, there could have been mistreatment, your children belong to the master and not to you. We have to be honest. The New Testament writers say things like this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Again, slaves, obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there's no partiality. Paul says to Timothy in his first letter, Let all who are under your yoke as slaves regard their masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Cares about the witness. By the way, that's exactly what we've dealt with in Peter so far. I want your conduct to be beautiful to the outsiders. I want the gospel to go forth. You're getting where this is going. The New Testament writers know what is going to change the world. What is that leaven that's going to work its way through the whole lump? They know it's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. And so he can say things like, those that have believing masters aren't allowed to be disrespectful on the grounds that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better. You must serve, doulos, verb form, all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Paul says to Titus, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that, again witness, in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And finally, 1 Corinthians 7, one of the most frustrating passages today to look at, to understand why would an apostle have said something like this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. By the way, you need to remember wherever you find yourself and wherever people in the history of the world have found themselves, the Lord assigned them that station. It may not look pretty and it may not be fun, but the Lord assigned that. And we have to be good stewards of what he has assigned. Paul says, this is my rule in all the churches. He goes on to say, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Were you a slave? Don't be concerned about it. But then he says, kind of in a parenthesis, but if you can gain your freedom, then avail yourself the opportunity. What's he saying? You may find yourself by God's sovereign plan in the station of a slave. Don't be concerned about it. Now, if your master comes to you and says, hey, I've got three manumission forms this year. You want one? Yes, please. I will avail myself of that opportunity. Take it. But don't spend all your time obsessing about that one thing. Serve well where God has placed you. Bloom where you are planted. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is already a freed man of the Lord. There's the gospel. There's where it comes in. That's the good news. That's what he's getting at. That's what's important to be apostles and the writers of the New Testament. Likewise, he who was free when called is now a slave of Christ. So slavery is unavoidable for anybody. You're a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. There's only two options. Both are slaves. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, I think a question comes to all of our minds. I mentioned this earlier. Why did the New Testament writers not abolish slavery? Why did the New Testament writers, Paul and Peter primarily, ask for obedience and submission from slaves and not require 
that their masters set them free. Why did the New Testament writers never say that it was always sinful to own a slave? I've heard it asked before. When Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon, his master, and Onesimus was a slave, and did not require that Philemon set him free, but sent him back as a slave, suggesting very strongly that Philemon should set him free, but didn't require him as an apostle to, would Paul have been welcome in our churches today? Or would we have excommunicated him and said, no, you, you must require that the slave be set free? Are we saying things in Scripture that God has not said? Now, what does the apostle think he's doing here by not requiring the manumission or freedom of all of the slaves? He's getting to it. His plan and his goal is that all the captives be set free. And that's why Christianity, you need to know, is about the gospel. Christianity is not a social movement. Beloved, Christianity isn't a social movement. It's just not. Get that out of your mind. Apart from Christ and his gospel, I don't think this is an overstatement. Social movements are a waste of time. Now, I know much good has been done through social movements. Don't hear me saying that digging wells for people in Africa or giving aid to refugees for uh, Armenians um, or people who are freeing the sex slavery in India is a fruitless endeavor. Don't hear me saying that. Christians can engage in all of those things and they can do so to the glory of God. But none of that has the power to set a man free from that which will eternally enslave him. And that is his sin. What is so important to the apostle? What is so primary in his mind is the freedom of all of us from our slavery to our sin and by preaching the gospel and captives being set free, the whole world begins to see, as Philemon surely did when he held that letter. Paul's imprisoned, and he's sending this man back to me as a brother in Christ. He's been converted. What's the right thing to do? Set him free. Set him free. Can I ask you a question today, beloved? Why are you here? Why are you raising your family in the instruction and admonition of the Lord? Husbands, why is it that you want to honor and cherish your wife? Wives, what would make you want to submit to your husbands instead of run your own life? What makes the Blowers, Chad and Lisa, want to get on a plane and spend years in a dangerous country while seeing perhaps little fruit in their lifetimes? What makes this church community want to support them in that? What makes the love and fellowship in our church that we've all communicated to one another so sweet and so rich? Why are we all going to escape eternal punishment and torment in hell? Beloved, it is not because of a social movement. It's not. It's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want to conclude with these words about slavery and the gospel of Jesus. This is Advent. This is everything that God wants us to know and notice even this time of year as we think about Christ's coming. The atonement is 
manumission from slavery. The atonement is our manumission from slavery. I want to read you a familiar passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. And like my brother this morning, I'm going to read this verse from the Legacy Standard Bible. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to hold on to, a thing to keep, but he emptied himself. He let go of that by taking the form of a slave. The word is doulos. By being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he went further. He humbled himself by being a, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What do we see here? The gospel, Christmas, Advent, is all about the great exchange. Here's Christ in heaven with God. Equality. Perfect unity. And yet... Not only does he step away from that in order to be made in the likeness of men, he takes, Paul says to the Philippians, the absolute lowest place. I love the Legacy Standard Bible's reading here, choosing the word slave, because it highlights the contrast. God, slave. Christ stepped as low as he could for our sake for our justification, for our atonement. Now, we may not like that. The fact that we are men and women is on par with being a slave. But that is the reality, beloved. And that is what Christ had to enter into for our sakes. The Word of God tells us that He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for our sins. He had to be completely identified with us. C.S. Lewis said, if you want to get the hang of what Paul's talking about here, think of how you'd like to become a slug or a crab, right? And we know that that doesn't even begin to touch the depth that Christ had to fall in order to take our place. And as if it wasn't enough that he took his seat as low as he could in slavery next to us, but he went further by humbling himself to the point of death. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If we're all walking around as slaves wearing a placard that has been sewn to our bodies that says, slave to sin, Jesus, the miracle of the gospel, takes that unrighteousness off of us and puts it on himself. And he goes further by taking the glories that he stepped away from in heaven and putting that robe on us. So when God sees us walking out of the darkness, the pit, the prison of our souls, he opens his arms to us as sons and daughters. We are already members of his family. This is the good news. This is what Paul and Peter are so focused on because this is all that matters. And when this is all that matters, when this is everything for us, the rest of the world begins to start to look like 
that gospel moment. How could I enslave my fellow man when I have been set free? I can't. I can't. The gospel eradicates the whole institution. It destroys it. That's why the apostles were so consumed with this. Christ was so identified with us that He not only became enslaved in the body of a man, but He took the place of men enslaved to their sin. I want to read to you from Puritan John Flavel. He is uh, <laughs> an excellent writer. And he theorized a conversation that took place before creation of the world between the Father and the Son. Okay, so this is my favorite story about Jesus that actually didn't happen. Okay? I love this story. It's fantastic. This is not the Bible, but boy, you're going to hear a lot of it in here. The Father says to the Son, My Son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves. Our shackles made with our own hands. And they now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. The Father says to the Son, What shall be done for these souls? Christ replies to the Father, O oh, my Father, such is my love to and pity for them. Then rather that they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Father, bring in all their bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand shalt thou require it. I would rather choose to suffer thy wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. The Father responds, But my son, if you undertake for them, you must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. The son replies, Content, father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me, for I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, and though it impoverish me of all of my riches, though it empty all my treasures, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Yet I am content to undertake it. Amen. That's the good news. That's what's so important. That's why what is underneath a tree right now or what you see on a TV screen or all the lights or all the show, or all it all pales in comparison to the Son, to Jesus. Nothing matters like this. This is everything to us. This is all of it. Flavel says, Blush, ungrateful believers. And let shame cover your faces. Judge in yourselves now. Has Christ deserved that you should stand with Him for trifles? That you should shrink at a few petty difficulties and complain, this is hard or that is harsh. Oh, if you knew the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in this 
his wonderful condescension for you, you could not do it. How can Peter write, I want you to serve your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. It's because he has plumbed the depths of the gospel. And he has seen the rich treasure that it is. And we are free, beloved. The gospel sets us free from our slavery to sin. And the gospel is the undoing of anyone ever owning anyone. Save for the fact that those of you today who are in Christ, and this is good news, will forever and always be owned by Jesus. And he will never let you go out of his hand. You will always belong to him. He paid such a high cost. We are this precious to him that he will never let us go. Oh, that our minds would go here at Advent. This is what God with us was all about. It was about the impoverishment of Christ being made a slave so that we could become the sons and the daughters of God. Well, let's pray, beloved. Father, the cruelties of this world are great. And yet, what Christ suffered is beyond our imagining. What He did for us is beyond compare. It does not make sin in this world that has happened, is happening, or will happen less grievous to you. But Jesus did for each of us pay it all. And now, all to Him we owe. Oh, help us, Father, to get a glimpse of Christ this season. May Jesus be all that we care about. Perhaps it be that families, whole families, would be so consumed with the love of Jesus that they might think, oh, we forgot to open a few presents. Oh, God, give us a consuming passion for Christ like this. Oh, that we would love Him like this. Oh, that He would be our all in all. Father, make this the case. Do this for each of us. We want to see your kingdom come. Only when we set Christ first in our lives is this possible. But when Christ is first, it is impossible for the fruit bearing to be held back. Your word tells us, if we abide in you, you and us, we will bear much fruit. Oh, Father, may we present to you glorious fruit on that day for your glory and your name alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.